0: Welcome to the London First Baptist Church Podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of August 11th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I to invite you to open up your Bibles, open to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be ending the last part of chapter 11 and going into chapter 12 this morning. So we're going to be looking at the last few verses of Mark chapter 11 and into the first few verses of Mark chapter 12. As we come to our pastors this morning, we're reminded of the last few weeks that we've been looking at this, and this is set in the last few days, that last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus has, in the last few days, he has healed a blind man, he's raised the dead. And he has claimed, really for many, in many ways, the first time very openly, he has claimed by his actions and his words to truly be the Messiah. He's done so by riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Now to us that may not say much, but to them that was a very clear sign that he was claiming to be the Messiah. He's claimed to be the Messiah by going into the temple and purifying it, throwing out the money changers. That was a a Messiah activity. And the leaders of the people of Israel, the the Jerusalem folks, they had no illusions. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. In fact, every time he does one of these things, you see this little statement that the leaders were plotting on how to take him and how to kill him because they knew what he was claiming. And in fact, the whole Gospel of Mark has been leading up to this. The very first verse of the Gospel of Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God. And then everything he's been doing in these last 11, 12 chapters has been leading up to this moment to let us, the reader, know that he is, in fact, who Mark claims he is. And the early years of this gospel, as it circulated around the, the Roman Empire and the early church, as they would have read it or as they would have listened to it, they would have come to this point in the gospel and they would have been given clear evidence that not only did Mark believe he was the Son of God, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. But even then, even as everybody made clear who Jesus was, the truth is, not everyone likes the fact that he made that claim. That bothered people. The truth is, even today, there are many in our world today that are comfortable with this idea of Jesus being a nice religious moral teacher, a a Jewish rabbi who taught us to be self-sacrificing and told us to love one another. They like that. They're comfortable with that. There are many in our world today who look back at the claims of Jesus and look back at what he did, and they're comfortable with the idea that He was a revolutionary. He was a rebel. He was going to lead a revolt against maybe even the Jewish leaders of his day, or maybe even the Romans. He was a a man of the people, so to speak. They liked that idea. But you bring in the idea that he's the Son of God, and now people get angry, and now people revolt, and now people aren't too sure they like what he's doing. So this is the context for what's happening in these last few verses of chapter 11. I'm going to read this. We're going to read from verse 27 to verse 33, end of chapter 11. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, that's Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, a couple things here. All three formal layers of leadership in the the area of Jerusalem are represented here. You have uh, the, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And these are the three layers of leadership here. In other words, Jesus has the leadership of Israel united against him. And all three others are coming to him, and they're essentially asking him this. I want to put it in modern phraseology. Just who do you think you are? That's what they're asking. You come in riding on a donkey. You come in cleansing the temple. You come in doing all these things. You, you make these claims. but really, Just who do you think you are to do all this? Who gave you the right to come in and to tell us what's going on? That's the question. Just who do you think you are and by what authority? So what Jesus does, knowing that really they're only there to try to embarrass and discredit him, he asks them this question about John the Baptist. Now, everyone who's reading this who remembers back to the early part of this gospel and John the Baptist said things to these guys like, you brutal vipers. He knows they're not big fans of John. And he knows that they don't really like John. But the people knew that John was a prophet. So here's their their dilemma. If they answer what they really believe, they know they have the crowds against them. They answer what the crowds believe, that they're going to be convicted of their own sin. So they just plead ignorance. And Jesus, who was unwilling to play their game at this point, says, well, if you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. So what you have here is this and all this is there to set this up. We now have Jesus making a clear claim as to who he is, and the leadership doesn't like it, and we have this this um, uh, this context that they are now looking for a way to kill him. The tension is set. I mentioned way longer when we first started Mark. Mark is in some ways the action novel of all four Gospels. If there would be, I don't think this would be a trite, this wouldn't be the best casting in the world, but if you were going to cast Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it might be the rock. It's the action. Jesus is always doing something and displaying power. I mean, he's the rock in the the Gospel of Mark. Now, probably, not again, not the best casting choice, but Jesus is kind of this action figure in, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark. He's always challenging authority. He's always putting them on notice. He's always making these declarations. And now, in chapter 11, he's made it, very clear who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And they realize what he's saying. I mean, we've, we've talked about this in the cleansing of the temple. We've talked about this with the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus is coming and he's saying not only am I the Messiah, but you guys are in trouble. And <laughs> They're not too happy about this, so, so they're playing. So we have this tension now. We have the challenge. The lines are finally and forever drawn. And just in case there is any confusion, Jesus shares with us a parable in the first few verses of chapter twelve. So now we're going to get to chapter twelve, verse one. This is a, just a continuation of this conversation. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower, and rooted it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive, some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Now, this parable that Jesus says, gives us here, I, I've, I've entitled this morning God, Grace, and the Gavel. And what we have here initially is a picture of who God is and what he is about in this big picture plan of God. So this parable begins actually with a quote. That, you may, have, uh, you may have them in, in italics or all caps, but the first verse of this parable begins with a man planted a vineyard. That is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 5. Now, Isaiah chapter 5 would have been a prophecy, it would have been a passage of scripture that these men were all very familiar with. It was a scripture that was a a, 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 fore, a foretelling of God's judgment. And the idea in Isaiah chapter 5 is that Israel is, as a country, as a people, a vineyard that God has planted. Now, in chapter 5, it takes a little different turn than here. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, the vineyard produces bad grapes, and it produces sour wine. And it represents the people of Israel not being obedient to God and turning their back on him and not producing the fruit that he's planted them to produce. And so Isaiah chapter 5 is this whole chapter about Israel not doing what God had told it to do and not being the people God had put them in place to be. And so he takes, the, he takes the same setup from Isaiah chapter 5, but he puts a twist on it. And instead of Israel being uh, con- condemned for being uh, you know, sour grapes, if you will, he does something different with it. He takes the intro and he turns it sideways, if you will. And he begins to talk about these tenants, these guys who are put in charge of the vineyard. So here's, here's what's going on. This is a pretty common day. We might use the term sharecropper today, but essentially what happened is this. The the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the land, his money, he puts the vines in place, he gets everything planted, he builds all the facilities, he builds the house, he builds everything that's needed to grow the grapes and then produce the wine. He puts everything in place. And then he brings these tenants, these guys on who are renting it from him. And their job is to take care of it while he goes away. And then they give him a share of the crops, and they get to keep the rest. That's the, that's the setup. It's a very common thing, especially in the days of Jesus. And you hear a lot of absentee landowners, guys that lived a long ways away. And you can imagine they spent some time here in the parable, because by the time you plant the vines, it's going to be a few years before the grapes are produced that really are worth the wine and the wine has to be produced. So it's some time. So this guy, the owner of the land, has paid them. He supported them. He fed them. He's given them a place to live. And when it comes time, several years later, to start getting a return on his investment, he sends a servant to go get it. And these guys, of course, respond in a pretty bad way. But this, this is so. God, of course, is the landowner in this setup. And if we look at who God is in this, we're going to see a couple things. One is this: we see that God sent multiple men. Multiple messengers. He communicated to these landowners, or to the tenants, quite a few times. And even when they initially rejected him, the landowner, God, sent multiple people. Know what that tells us about who God is? Tells us that he's gracious and kind and patient. Now, let's back up even further than that. The landowner puts everything in place. And he owns this property. He owns the grapes. He owns all that's there. We, we begin by recognizing this morning that the God that we serve this morning put everything in place. He has created all that we have, all that we see. This is his world. The martyr it's his world. You and I just live in it. It's all his. Look around you. This building is not ours. The roads outside are not ours. They don't even belong in the state of Arkansas. All that takes place, the trees, the lakes, the rivers, the mountains, all these are not ours to do with as we please. They, in fact, all belong to God. Even you and I ourselves. God created us. We are here not for our own reasons. We are here for his purposes. We belong to him. That's who God is. And then secondly, we have this gracious God. He's the owner. He does, he's put everything in place, but we have a God who has put all things in place, and He is a patient, gracious God. Second Peter chapter three verse nine says this: "The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. One after another, we see in this parable here that God is one who has sent messengers. He sent prophets. He has um, sent." one after another. If we look through the Old Testament in particular, but even in the New Testament, we see that God sends people one after another, time after time, generation after generation, always to make sure that one group of people after another know the truth of who God is. And we're in the same boat today. God has sent person after person to tell us about who he is and to share his word. Secondly, God has given us his word. As we sit here this morning, we, uh, we not only see God has sent people to us, we know that God has given us his word. This thing that we call the Bible is God's attempt to communicate to us in a written and verbal way. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 speaks to the validity of God's scripture and its role in our lives. But not only has God given us messengers, not only has God given us Word, his word, he's given us the stars, he's given us creation. He's given us the universe that we have in front of us. Psalm 19 says this The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, force forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The world that you and I live in is a mirror and a reflection of who God is. All that we live in is a testimony and a declaration that God is here. But not only has he given us that, he has given us a conscience as to what is right and what is wrong. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says this, that which which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. It's speaking of this idea that God has planted within us the the human mind, the human heart, the human conscience, if you will, something that speaks to what is right and what is wrong, an awareness of of who he is. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Titus 1 15, among other scriptures, talk about how as a human race we have taken this conscience, that we have taken this awareness of who he is inside of us, and we've abused it, and we've ignored it, and we've damaged it. He even uses the word searing it at one point, called that searing a conscience. You know what happens if you burn something? If you were to touch your hands, so something very hot and hold it there, it would burn your fingers. And what happens when it burns those fingers, it kills the nerve endings you can't feel in your hands the same way you could have felt otherwise because the nerves have been damaged. And so God even says, not only have giving given you a conscience, but he says the human race, sometimes what you've done is you have so ignored, you have so damaged that conscience I've given you, you can't even feel it anymore. All that's proof that God has given us something inside of us that lets us know that he is there. The very idea that our world would look at certain actions and behaviors and call them right or wrong. Let me just show with you something really quick. When um, I watched last week, uh, there was a new show on, I think it was Discovery, called Serengeti. I like watching these shows and all the animals. and Some of the photography of this thing was fantastic. And guess what I saw on that show? I saw a lion kill an antelope. I saw it. It was cool looking. And it never occurred to me to say, that lion, he is so evil. Now, why did it not occur to me to think that? Because we know it's the normal behavior of lions to kill stuff, eat it, right? Now, you and I, by the wisdom of this world, we are just another animal. If we were to buy the philosophy of our age, you and I, were just another creature on this earth. And while you and I wouldn't put morality on an animal like a lion or a tiger, because that's just their nature, if we're just another animal, guess what that means? There's no such thing as right or wrong. And yet, you and I know that's not the case, don't we? And the truth is, even those who don't believe in God... Those who would deny the existence of Christ, they all in their hearts know. In fact, they speak in language as if things are, in fact, right or wrong. The only way right or wrong can exist is if God's put them in our hearts. The very fact that we are and think about things in a moral way is in itself evidence that God is there. So, not only has God given us messengers and prophets and speakers, not only has He given us His word and the creation and a conscience. He's given us finally, as in this parable, He's given us His Son. John chapter 1 refers to this several times. I want to read this for you. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, speaking of Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Hebrews 1, 1 talks about how Jesus is, in fact, the way that God has chosen to speak to us today. God has sent us all these things. He sent us all these people. He has surrounded us by all these things that virtually shout and scream of his existence, of his power, of his grace, and of his love. He has spoken to us patiently, repeatedly, tenderly. He's given us evidence of him everywhere we look whether it's the stars, the weather, the mountains, the lakes, the rains, the scriptures themselves, whether it's our inward conscience, <laughs> sorry, or even if you look at our DNA, everywhere you and I look, out and in, is evidence that God is there. You know, one thing I've found in my own life, and perhaps you've recognized this too, like the people of Israel found themselves in this spot. No matter how much God speaks, no matter how many times he sends his message, no matter how many people he sends to us, no matter how evident he might be around us, we still sometimes miss him because we're not looking in the right places. Because we're expecting something or someone else or we don't like the way he's done things. Sometimes we're so focused on what God hasn't done, we miss what he has. Sometimes we're so focused on what God hasn't said, we miss what he has. And maybe like Job, there are questions we've asked and God hasn't answered them, or we didn't like the answers we got. And we haven't gotten explanations of what's taken place. I imagine every one of us has things that have taken place in our lifetime that we looked at and were painful and were hurtful and maybe we thought happened to us unfairly. God, I didn't deserve that. I don't know why that happened. God, I didn't do anything to deserve that level of pain, that level of betrayal, that level of hurt. What did I do to have that happen? Lord, I didn't do anything to, to deserve that. Why did you let that happen in my life? Lord, why did you cause that to take place? God, that's not fair. Why? Maybe it's in our lives, maybe it's in the lives of those around us. And maybe we've even begun to question if God's even there, or if God even cares, or if God loves us. We just don't see it. And we don't recognize the fact that all around us, God has sent person after person, and word after word, and star after star, so let us know who he is. You know, the first time I heard this particular phrase, I was, it's been a long time ago. Some of you may remember and have heard of a man by the name of Henry Blackaby in a study he wrote several, it's been 30 years now, called Experiencing God. I had a chance to meet Henry Blackaby a couple times, and I was in college the first time I met him about 1989. And he was talking about this same idea. He's talk, he talks about it even in his book, in his study, Experiencing God. And he says, there's been more than one time that even Christians have begun to question whether or not God really loves them. And so he, tell, he says this, do this. Take whatever event you're going through. Take whatever suffering you're experiencing. Take whatever pain that you're enduring. Take that. You can pick it up and put it in a bundle, so to speak. Or at the very least, move it And then step back and put that experience, put that pain, put that trial, put it in front of the cross and ask God whether he loves you. Put it in front of the cross and then ask, God, do you still love me? If nothing else this morning, if you think you can't see God in anything else, at the very least, Take whatever is going on in your life and put it in front of the cross. Then ask God whether he loves you. I think the answer will be in all bold, underlined, caps, yes. The truth is, if we're not careful, you and I miss what God has done. We miss him saying, I love you. We miss him talking about his power because we thought it might come in a different package or look differently. I just i want to just ask this. I just pause here. In the last seven days, has God communicated to you through His Word, through the words of an individual, through His creation, through some action, through the Word? I'm pretty sure I'm. I'm comfortable saying the answer was yes, even if we didn't see it. Be aware of what God's trying to do. He is a gracious God who repeatedly makes every tip to let us know who He is. Just like He did here in this parable. He is a gracious God, loving. Now, despite all that, the man in this vineyard did not respond to God's repeated efforts of grace and, and attempts to communicate and his attempts to interact. In this parable, there is an end to God's patience. Now, this parable in a big picture is a story of Israel's generational, decade after decade, century after century rejection of. Of the God who brought them and made them their people. God had sent prophet after prophet and done thing after thing, from calling Abraham to delivering them out of slavery in Egypt to delivering them to the city of Jericho to walking with them through the desert. He had conquered nation after nation in front of them and established them as a nation, and yet they continued to reject him. David had slain the giant. Solomon had built the temple. God had sent men like Amos and uh, Joash and Elijah and Elisha, and time after time they had rejected these. If we were to go to the book of Acts, we would see a man named Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian church. And Stephen indicts the people who were ready to kill him and says, listen, you've rejected every prophet that's ever come to you. Even Moses had to deal with the people of Israel rebelling against him multiple times. Amos, the prophet, spoke against the northern kingdom, was run out of the northern kingdom for fear of his life. Jeremiah, this great book of the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, had his writings burned, was cast into jail, put into pits, and eventually some, think, some think he was uh, sawn in two. Elijah had to run for his life from Ahab and Jezebel. Even John the Baptist was rejected and killed in Jesus' day. Ezekiel was murdered for his prophecy. Prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, Stephen said in the book of Acts to the people of Israel, there was not one prophet that you didn't reject. Not one. So in Jesus' day, they're condemned about rejecting another one. Now, I mentioned a twist on that Isaiah 5 vineyard look. The twist here is this. The emphasis on this thing is not necessarily that Israel is a vineyard that's produced sour grapes. This, the thing here is that Israel is a vineyard whom God had entrusted to men to lead and to take care of, those religious leaders. And that those religious leaders had rejected the very one who gave them the vineyard and had led the people of God astray. In fact, he quotes a verse here in chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 10, chapter 12. This is from Psalm 118. And most of Psalm 118 is this celebratory, high energy, loving kindness, God is great to be praised, this whole thing. In the middle of this, you have this phrase here. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What's he talking about? We sang this morning about a cornerstone. What is Jesus talking about? What is a cornerstone? The idea of a cornerstone was this. As you were building a structure of, some, of some, some spot, you would measure out the ground. You would dig the hole for the foundation. But there was a first stone. It would be in the corner. It would hopefully be a square stone, perfectly 90 degrees. And the idea is this. Everything else around the rest of that building is built to line up along those two stones, about along those two edges. If that, uh, if that cornerstone was crooked, everything else was going to be crooked. And so what Jesus is saying is this, what Psalm 118 is saying is this, God has provided a cornerstone, one that is perfectly straight, off of which everything else is lined up. And, of course, who is that cornerstone? It's Jesus himself. And yet, what Jesus is saying is this you guys, as the one that God has put in charge of his vineyard, have rejected and set aside the cornerstone, the very thing put there in place to guide everything else so that the building will be straight and profitable and useful. You guys have rejected God's cornerstone and replaced it with your own line. And guess what? You and I, we're crooked. And anything built upon our ideas will not be straight. We build upon our own philosophies. We build upon our own wants and desires. We build upon our own ideas of what's right and wrong. And you and I will always be less than straight. Our, our lives are to be in line with the lines set aside or set up by the chief cornerstone. And Jesus is looking at these guys and saying, you have not only rejected every one that God's ever sent to you. You're finally now, and by the way, who's the son in this parable? This parable is a very straight-up declaration. Jesus is going, I'm the son. I'm the cornerstone, and I'm the one who who you guys are getting ready to kill. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He's claiming essentially again in this parable to be the son of God. Now, this, Jesus isn't inventing anything new here. Jesus is not here to start a new religion, so to speak, even though sometimes the world treats it like that. He's trying to remind them of what has always been true, that they belong to God. God has graciously and repeatedly tried to speak and act in their lives, and they have repeatedly rejected him to the point or even rejecting the chief cornerstone. They would rather line up their lives their own standards and have a crooked house that line up to the pattern that God has set up to be a straight house. And the story ends with this question. What will the owner of this vineyard do? You talk about an ominous question. (laughs) You talk about a question that has a less than happy ending for somebody. For those who have rejected the cornerstone, there is coming a day when the gracious, enduring patience of God will be finished. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 speaks of this type of thing. and says, Paul's telling his folks in 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. In other words, don't put it off. Don't assume that God's going to send one more messenger don't assume that God's going to give you one more day. Don't assume that God is just going to keep being patient. There's going to come a day, and we don't necessarily know when it is, when God's patience will be finished. And the consequences will come. It's not, not the most pleasant of passages. We've, we've had a lot cheerier passages in the last few weeks. The last few months the Gospel of Mark, but this one, Jesus is, Jesus is sending a warning shot. Don't keep ignoring God's attempts. Because at some point comes the army, and at some point comes the end. Now, we're not yet finished with the Gospel of Mark. There's still more yet to come. But in many ways, as we get to chapter 12, we're coming to a decision point. Mark chapter 1 introduced this Gospel as the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God of God. and Now as Mark brings us to chapter 12, he's asking us in many ways what are you going to do with this claim? Are you going to accept the words of the messengers and accept the Son and repent and come in line with the cornerstone or will you be like these tenants here who rejected every overture God provided? The question is even there and relevant for us this morning. There may be some of you even here today who God has made repeated attempts to bring to salvation. He has presented you the gospel. He has sent people into your lives to share with you the truth of scripture. You're even here this morning, you're hearing the gospel again today. And time after time after time, you have just put it off. You've said, not today, not yet, I'm not ready. No. Don't assume you have next week. You might. You might not. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. There were 20 some people in a Walmart a week ago who thought they had another day. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We have no idea. Today is the day of salvation. Now, there may be some of you who are believers this morning. You have placed your faith in Christ. You have already given your life to Him. But the truth is, you have straight from the cornerstone. And maybe you've even experienced some difficulties and you've thought to yourself, I don't know if the God whom I trusted at one point really is still there. I don't know if maybe I was believing in vain. And part of it is you have been looking for God in places he's been over here doing this and you've been looking over here. God hasn't come to you in the package that you thought he might. And maybe God just wants you to bring you over here and say, do you see what I've done? Do you see how much i love you? Do you see how I've tried to, to talk with you? Do not reject a cornerstone.